0: Our sermon today is taken from Romans 5 verses 1 to 11. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore...
1: Friends, we are continuing in our series of the Book of Romans this week, and today we're going to begin Chapter Five. Quick note: after we're done with Chapter Five, we are going to take a quick break from our series of the Book of Romans, and we're going to do four short weeks on the Psalms. So each preacher, after Romans Chapter Five, we're just going to choose four different Psalms, and we're going to we're going to preach on it. And the reason why we're doing that is because the Book of Romans is is more of a technical kind of book. There's a lot of systematic. Type theology that Paul is kind of throwing our way, and and we just thought it'd be good in the middle of all this to take a quick break uh, and talk about something more poetic, like 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 the Psalms. I hope it'd be edifying uh, for all of us, and 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 hope you would stay tuned for that. But for today, we are going to continue in chapter five, and what we see Paul talking here in chapter five is still the same thing that he's been talking about from chapter one to four. He's still talking about God's redemption plan. Paul is still talking about our salvation. But the difference is, if in chapter 1 to 4, Paul is talking about our salvation more from a bird's eye kind of view, right, uh, more talking about how God saves us through Christ alone and how God saves us through faith alone, Paul here in chapter 5 is talking about our salvation more in the sense of how can we know that we've been saved? H- how can we know that we've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior? How can How can you tell? You know, is it is it that you said a prayer one day? Is is that how you can tell, or is there is there more to it? Now, many Christians, I think, would agree that there is more to it, right? And and many would rightly say, if you're saved or if you're truly born again, the fruit, the evidence of that salvation, is that you're gonna start obeying God's commands, right? The obedience, uh, uh, your obedience, is a fruit of of your salvation, and that is absolutely true. Jesus says that in John chapter 15. James, the book of James says that, right? What does he say? Um, Faith without works is dead. Not not meaning that you're saved by faith in Christ plus your good works. No, what James is saying there is that if you truly are saved, if you truly are born again, you will then produce good works. That is the evidence of of salvation. And that's absolutely true. However, that's not Paul's particular angle here. Paul here in Romans chapter 5 is claiming that the evidence of salvation is apparent not just in your external actions, but also in your internal dispositions. Look at the passage again. Look at the kinds of words that Paul is using here. He's using words like, you will have hope, joy. Endurance and suffering, peace in trials. What Paul is saying is that, yeah, that the presence of external good works, yes, that is evidence of salvation. But the presence of joy, internally, the presence of hope and peace in your hearts, th- those are also evidences of your salvation. So, so let's get to it. How can you know? Paul claims. How can you know that when you accepted Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior, you weren't just doing it for mom and dad? You weren't just doing it because you happened to be born in a culture where Christianity is, is an approved religion. How can you know that it's genuine and real? Well, three things. One, you can know because your future hope will be so strong that it'll change the way you think of suffering today as you emotively sense God's gift in the past. You, you can know that you are truly born again, saved in Christ uh, if your future hope is so strong that it changes the way you think about suffering today as you emotively sense God's gift in the past. All right, let, let's get to it. Point number one, your future hope will be strong. So I had this, uh, this seminary professor uh, in seminary who loved to make his point sound louder by wording it in such a way that it sounded borderline heretical. <laughs> that, that's just kind of guy he was. Okay, so if you're falling asleep in class, you would hear him say something, and you just kind of perk up. You say, well, what did he just say? And, and I guess it worked, because there's this one thing that he said that, that stuck to me until today. As he was explaining the gospel, he, he asked the class one simple question. He goes, why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? You know, and of course, a class full of seminarians, feeling pretty confident by themselves, said, yeah, we got this, and we raised our hands, and he asked us, why did Jesus go down on the cross? And we answered, Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us from our sins. And immediately, as if he was kind of fishing for that answer, immediately he said, nope, wrong. <laughs> and we all looked around and, you know, asked ourselves, what do you mean wrong? That, that's Bible 101. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He said, nope, wrong. And, you know, now that he's got our attention, he gave us the right answer. He said, Jesus Christ died on the cross to reconcile you to the Father. The forgiveness of your sins is not the end goal, he explains. It's only a necessary step so that you may be reconciled to the Father. And of course, you know, we kind of looked at each other, and some of us even rolled our eyes, whispering, you know, okay, you you, you got me there. Because it does kind of sound like theological hair-splitting, right? Unnecessary detail to talk about, but but I think it's a pretty... Significant detail. Actually, it clarifies a lot of things. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, well, Jesus Christ died for my sins, so now I can live however the heck I want, right? I mean, that's a temptation that we Christians feel at times. That is a a, a rebuttal that non-Christians say against Christianity. Oh, Jesus Christ died for my sins, so I can just live however the heck I want, right? But see, if the purpose of Jesus Christ dying on the cross was not actually to forgive you of your sins. But it was to reconcile you to the Father, then that clarifies a lot. Because then, no, you can't just live however the heck you want. (laughs) Because a saved person isn't just a person whose sins have been washed away. A saved person is a person who lives their lives as if they're at peace with the Father, a person who lives their life at peace with God. And, you know, let me ask us this Does that mark our lives? When someone looks at the way you speak, the way I speak, you know, when somebody looks at the way we spend our money, when somebody looks at the way we make decisions, when somebody looks at the way um, we choose what to watch, when somebody looks at the way we forgive, when somebody looks at the way we live our lives, can that person say, this is a man or a woman who is at peace with God? Can they say that? it's not theological hair splitting. splitting. It has huge implications, and that's what Paul is trying to explain to us here in verse 1. Let me read verse 1 to you. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the end goal of the cross is not that we may be justified or forgiven. The end goal of the cross is that we may have peace with God. Now, How long does this peace last is the next thing Paul talks about. Until we make our next mistake, until we fall into our next sin? No. Look at verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean, in hope of the glory of God? The, The glory of God refers to the state that the believer will be in at the end of this whole thing. Right? It is our salvation fully accomplished when we see God face to face in glory, in perfection. Okay, let, me, let me read you one verse that hopefully can, can clarify this concept. Romans 8, chapter 30. Romans 8, chapter 30 gives us a chronological order of salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And if you have an issue with the concept of predestination and all that, we'll, we'll get there in Romans chapter 8. But for now, let me, just, let me just read the verse. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the end, when we see God face to face in glory. Here are the steps, if you would, to God's salvation process. He predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. But there's one important thing I want to point out from the verse we just read from Romans 8, chapter 30. It's a really important detail. Paul doesn't describe this order of salvation as if there are separate blessings that God gives to a sinner at separate times dependent upon external circumstances. It's not. Look at it again. I think hopefully it'll be clear. Paul doesn't say, and those whom he predestined, he might call, and those whom he called, he maybe will justify, and those whom he justified, he perhaps will glorify. No. To God, it's, it's a done deal. It's a whole packet. How do we see that? Look at how God uses the, the past tense to describe the order of salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, as if it's already done. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, as if it's already happened. In God's mind, it's as good as already have happened. See, from our perspective, because we are creatures that exist under the concept of time, we can't help but view our salvation as small packets of grace that God gives chronologically. Okay, first we are justified, we accept the Christ as Lord and Savior, and then uh, we are glorified, and then we're resurrected in the end. Perfect in the end days, right? But God, see, He's beyond time. Our salvation is not small packets of grace given chronologically to Him, it's one huge packet of grace showered upon us decisively from beginning to end by Him who is love Himself. For God, you see, our justification, our salvation in Christ, that's just our future glorification beginning. And our future glorification, when we see Him in the end of all this, perfect. That's just our justification completed. Salvation to God is one big packet of grace. When Jesus Christ said, It is finished, He wasn't trying to be poetic. It's finished, He meant it. And that's why verse 2 says, We rejoice. In what? Not in the potential of salvation, but in the assurance of salvation. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope here is not this uncertain thing in the Bible. Hope here is a certain thing that will happen in the future that has not yet come. You see, this is a completely different way of viewing joy. See, when when we often talk about joy, at least when I talk about joy, often what we mean is the absence of worry. Joy is the absence of worry. That's what produces joy. And and Paul is saying here, no, no. The absence of worry is not what produces joy. It's the presence of assurance. That's what gives us joy, okay? Imagine you're watching your favorite sports team play uh, in the World Cup finals or if you're an NBA fan, the championship right? And this is it. This is the end. And your favorite team is playing. And before tip-off or before kickoff, you know, you're still hopeful. You still have joy in your heart. Why? Because there's no reason to worry yet. The score is still 0-0. So you feel this kind of peace and hope in the beginning due to the absence of worry. That's not the kind of joy Paul's talking about here. Now imagine a second scenario. You're watching the same team play, the World Cup, championship, whatever. But this time, you see it's a rerun. This time it's a recording of last year's championship. And you know that in last year's championship, your team won. They already won. You see, you see a difference there. You, you feel a peace and joy as well in this scenario, but it's a kind of peace and joy that is birth birthed not out of the absence of worry, but because of the presence of certainty. You've won. It's done. You're at peace. You have joy. Look, someone who who thinks they're going to lose at the end will never be at joy, no matter how much they're winning today. But somebody who knows they're going to win at the end, you see, they'll have joy today even if they're losing. Friends, it's 2020. We're all losing. We're all losing. Jakarta had these floodings. Australia had the forest fires. Where do I even start with America. Lebanon with the recent explosion, COVID, everywhere, the lockdown, the financial crisis, online schooling, (laughs) it's tough. We're losing. We're losing. But if we can just get a glimpse of God's perspective to whom all of time, as C.S. Lewis puts it, is merely an area of His infinite now, if we can just get a glimpse of that and the end, which Paul does give us here in verse 2 it'll change everything, everything, including the way we view suffering today, which is our second point. If you've genuinely accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, your future hope will be so strong that it'll affect the way we handle suffering today. Let's continue in verse 3. Notice how Paul very quickly transitions here from talking about the future hope of glory at the end of verse 2 to how we handle sufferings today in verse three. Okay, look at verse two. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what verse two says. And then very quickly, but not only that, Paul says in verse three, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings today. What Paul is saying here is that future hope is not yet true future hope unless it has also become real current power. A power that does what? That takes all of our sufferings away? No. Look at verse 3. It very clearly says it's a power that causes us to rejoice in our sufferings, not rejoice because there's an absence of suffering or an absence of worry. If you ever come across a preacher that is inviting you into Christianity by promising you that as a Christian you will not suffer, run. That is not the kind of joy that heaven promises. The power that God gives His children is not the power to chase sufferings away. It's the power to use our sufferings for spiritual growth. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Okay. Let's get specific. How, How does this work? So when suffering happens, the true born-again Christian will experience two things. First, they'll think about God's salvation. Second, they will feel God's salvation. Okay, let's talk about the first thing here first. Look at, look at verse 3 to 4 again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. To know here is a cerebral exercise. It's an activity of the mind. So in other words, when a bad situation presents itself in a believer's life, the born-again person will pay attention to the internal dialogue that's happening within them. We we all talk to ourselves a lot, don't we? We just don't do it out loud because then people will think we're crazy. But we, we all talk to ourselves. We do. And when something bad happens the Christian will be aware of this internal dialogue that's happening and they will think to themselves in this internal dialogue, I'm having a bad situation and is the way I'm feeling about this bad situation in line with the fact that I am currently, as verses 1-2 to says, at peace with God. Is my feelings about this bad situation in line with the reality that I am currently at peace with God, as verses 1 and 2 says? So when something bad happens and you find yourself thinking, oh man, God hates me. He hates me. That that is why this is happening, is because he hates me. The Christian will, will, will catch that internal dialogue and think to themselves, hold on a second, is that true? Let's think about this. Is that thought in line with the reality that I'm at peace with God? Because if I am at peace with God, then how can he hate me? Oh, this is happening because the universe is this random hostile place that that is just out to get me. Hold on, is that true? Is that in line with the reality that I'm at peace with God? Because if I'm at peace with God, then I'm at peace with the one who controls all things. You know, something happens and you think to yourself, this is it. This is it. This is my worst nightmare. If, if anything's going to destroy me, it's this. And the Christian will think to themselves, hold on. Is that true? Will this be my ultimate demise? Would God let somebody who is at peace with him be destroyed like this in an utter kind of way? See, whenever suffering comes, the Christian, we might struggle with hopelessness and, and these bad thoughts, these these unbiblical thoughts, but he or she will eventually come to know and think and say, hold on. Hold on. I'm at peace with God. And that thought will dictate how you view your situation. That hold on moment, it may not come immediately. It won't, actually, especially if you're in the thick of it, especially if the suffering just happened. It's not going to happen immediately, but it will eventually come. Now, how can I be so bold to claim that? Because, look at verse 5, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You will reach this hold on moment, not because you're capable of it, but because the Holy Spirit is, and because the Holy Spirit is in you. That's why you'll do it. And when you do eventually get to these hold on moments, what's going to happen? You're going to change your thinking and what? Your, your pain's just going to magically disappear? No. Rather, your complaints will be turned into laments. You're going to change the way you think about the suffering and your complaints will be turned into laments. What do I mean? See, both the complainer and the lamenter, they both feel pain. They both are still experiencing suffering. But the complainer assumes that a bad God is behind their suffering. And the lamenter assumes, rather knows, that a good God is behind their suffering. That's what the Holy Spirit will do in the life of a born-again person, of the life of a saved man, or woman, he will bring them through their pain eventually to hold on a second moment, in line their thoughts with their the reality of their salvation, and turn their complaints into lament. That's what it means to rejoice in suffering, to have both at the same time. See, joy without suffering, that's ignorant. You, you would have to be ignorant, you'd have to tune out 90% of what's happening in the world today, because literally, that's, there's a lot of suffering going on, okay? To, to have joy without, um, without suffering is ignorant. That's, that's ignorant peace. But to have suffering without joy, on the other hand, that's just unbearable. That's unbearable. All that'll do is make you bitter and complain all the time, you see. But to rejoice in suffering... To have joy and suffering combined, you know what that'll produce? It'll produce lament. That's what it means to endure. To be ignorantly happy, that's not endurance. To be bitter and to complain all the time, that's not endurance. Enduring feels like lament. It feels like joy and suffering combined. That lament, that's what's going to produce character and hope, Paul claims. Okay, well, how does that work? A a pastor that I heard preach on this very, I think, eloquently said something that feels like bad news at first, but is actually good news. He said this, I'm very strongly persuaded that hopelessness is the doorway to true hope. I'm very strongly persuaded that hopelessness is the doorway to true hope. To be torn apart from all the things we place our hope in That'll produce lament, yes, but it'll also grow our reliance upon Christ. Why? Because you don't know He's all you need until He's all you got. You won't know He's all you need until He's all you got. Hopelessness is a doorway to true hope. So, this is Paul's claim. How do you know that you're saved? Or, in other words, how do you know that the Holy Spirit is in you? You'll know when, in your suffering, you are eventually brought to a hold on a second moment where you're reminded that you are actually at peace with God and that this God desires your good and that He's behind your suffering. And this hold on a second moment will then cause you to endure, not ignore, not complain. But endure, which feels like lament. And in the process of that lament, your character and your hope will be made stronger because when everything else is ripped out of your hands, you'll see just how sufficient Christ is because you don't really know He's all you need until He's all you got. That's one of the signs of a true believer. The Holy Spirit will lead your mind to that point. But that's not all. That's not all the Spirit will do. There's another very important thing Paul says here that the Holy Spirit does in a believer's life while they're suffering. The Holy Spirit doesn't just remind the believer cognitively of God's salvation in their minds in moments of suffering, but the Holy Spirit will also make the the believer feel emotively God's salvation in moments of suffering, which is our third point. How can you know you're saved? Your future hope will be so strong that it'll change the way you think of suffering today as you continually sense God's love gift in the past. Now, I I hope, I think, I'm not so naive to be unaware of the fact that some of us may be experiencing a kind of pain right now that is beyond what the mind could handle. A lot of us are thinking, I need the Holy Spirit to do more than just cognitive therapy, right? And, and thankfully, He does. He does. Look at verse 5 again. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The phrase poured here in the Greek is an emotive phrase, is an activity that often targets the sense experience. Plus, look at where God's love is poured out to, poured into our hearts. What Paul is trying to point out here in verse 5 is that the work of the Spirit in the believer's life is not just cognitive, it's also emotional in the sense experience. And, and look, Presbyterians, we can't be too nervous about verses like this. And I get it. I get that we don't want to fall into sensationalism, and I get we don't want to fall into emotionalism, and that's good. I'm all for that. We shouldn't fall into those things. But neither can we deny the fact that the Holy Spirit in this passage performs heart surgery as well as brain surgery. As as the Christian laments, Paul is saying here, the Holy Spirit will not only point their minds to the reality of their salvation, but also stir their emotions to the reality of their salvation. How? How will he do that? By making us feel God's love on the cross. Look at verses 5 to 8. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we, we got to get specific here. When we say the Holy Spirit makes us feel God's love on the cross, is Paul here talking about Jesus' love on the cross? Yes, but, but specifically, no. More specifically, whose love our hearts are meant to be convinced of in these moments of lament? Let me read verse 8 again. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whose love was shown to us on that cross? Whose love are we meant to be convinced of? Yes, Jesus on the cross, but God, the Father, the Father's love. You you know, I don't don't think it's a coincidence that Paul here is talking about the Father's love in chapter 5 after having extensively talked about Abraham in chapter 4. I don't think this is an explicit connection, but but perhaps I think I'm convinced it's an implicit one. Because when you think of Abraham and Abraham's story, what's one story that you can't help but think of? It's it's when he was called to sacrifice Isaac, right? In Genesis chapter 22, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on a hill. And if you read Genesis chapter 22, you'll notice that God repeats this one phrase as he was telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac Abraham, you are to sacrifice, God says, your one and only son. Your one and only son. Abraham, take your son, your only son. He repeats that over and over again. And and the reader there of Genesis 2 is meant to ask, you know, why not just say your son? Why say your son, your only son? It seems repetitive and unnecessary. Well, the point there is to emphasize that this was a big deal for Abraham. You know, can you imagine that? He had to sacrifice his one and only son. Imagine how heavy Abraham's feet and hands must have been walking up that hill to the altar of sacrifice. Now, I want to be careful here to not make too tight of a connection between God the Father's emotions when he crucified Jesus Christ on the cross and Abraham's emotions when he was offering Isaac in Genesis 22 because I don't think you can make, you know, human emotions and divine emotions. You can't make that that clear of a distinction there. But I also think it's kind of hard to claim that there's absolutely no correlation at all. Derek Kidner, um, in his commentary of Genesis chapter 22, said this. The loading of the wood onto Isaac brings inevitably to mind the cross that Jesus bore. But the fire and the knife were in Abraham's hands. The offering, Isaac, and the offerer, Abraham the father, walking both of them together up that hill. If you wanna lament well, then it is absolutely important for you to know that God the Father is at peace with you. And he delights in you. Yes, even now, in your moments of suffering. And how can He know that? How can He know that? Because while you were still his enemy, he gave his son, his only begotten son, to die in your place. The wood was on Jesus' back, but the fire and the knife was in the Father's hand. And unlike Abraham, who was told to hold back right before he swung that knife, your Father in heaven didn't hold back and offered up his only begotten Son for you, for me. He's looking upon you with delight, even now. And I, I, I get how those words might sound naive coming from me. You know, some of us may be thinking to ourselves, Tazar... If you just knew what I was going through, you would never, with a straight face, be able to say pretty words like, the Father is delighting in me right now, because you don't know how this feels. If you did, you wouldn't dare say that. And look, you'd be absolutely right. I don't have the right to say these words to you. But look, this isn't a letter written by me to you. It's a letter written by your Father in heaven, by God, to all of us, to all of his people. To me unto you and, and see what's unique about christianity and no other religion by the way teaches this what's unique about christianity is that in christianity the god who calls you to lament has lamented more than you ever have and ever will and the god who calls you to en- endure in your tears has cried louder than you ever have and you ever will and the tears that he endured weren't his own. They were ours when he died on that cross in our place. See, I don't have the right to say these words to you, but if you believe in the gospel, he does. See, other religions, they may present a God who is you know, powerful beyond our sufferings. They may present a God who is sovereign, who controls our sufferings, but none of them, none of them present a God who entered into our suffering and died so that we may live. This is the God that you and I have. And, and knowing this in your head, sensing this in your heart, you know what it'll do? It'll make you complain less and lament more. And this lament is a doorway to true hope. And this hope will then cause you to endure more and more until you see Him face to face. So let's, let's summarize. How do you know that you're born again? How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit in you? Is that in your moments of suffering, you'll be reminded in your head of your salvation, and you'll be reminded emotively in your heart of your salvation. And that remembrance will not make your pain disappear magically. That remembrance will cause you to lament and endure and suffer well. And in those sufferings, you will grow to hope in Christ and in Christ alone, who is the only one you need, but you didn't know that until he's the only one you have. And that will cause you to grow in your hope, and that will cause you to be sanctified and matured in His likeness. And you'll repeat this process until you see Him again, this triune God, face to face. And you'll praise Him eternally for not only being the one who authored your salvation, but also being the one who brought you safely home to the end. He called you, He is sustaining you, and He will bring you home. That's how you know you're born again. And I pray that this robust future hope and this robust current power that our salvation brings us will become real, will become vivid in all of our hearts to the praise of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we don't understand a lot of the reasons as why it is you allow us to experience and feel the things we do today. Why the things you rob us of or rather the things you take away from us that feels like robbery but is really not feels so painful that it causes us to be tempted to wave our fists to the heavens. We don't get it. We don't understand. But I pray that as your Spirit works graciously in our hearts, we would be um, moved from waving our fists to bending down on our knees. We would be moved from complaint to lament and that we would truly endure as joy and suffering meet and think of You, and think of our salvation, and as the Spirit does that both in our heads and emotively in our hearts, we would be pruned from whatever other hopes we have put our minds and our hearts in, apart from Christ, and that we would grow in greater hope of the future glory we are to see, and that we are to grow in a current joy even in our suffering today. This is a power that our minds and our hearts cannot prompt up by itself, and we need, Father, the grace of Your Spirit to make clear the love of Your Son. That is the only way we'll endure. Give that to us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.